0: Good afternoon, my name is Amy B, a very grateful recovered compulsive overeater. And for the Mid-Hudson Intergroup, I would like to welcome you to Trudge Talk Conversations Along the Broad Highway, Young Persons Edition. Um, I would like to first welcome our speakers, our guests, our conversation havers for today, Kira B and Rachel P, thank you both so much for your service here today and for your incredible preparation um, and work today. It is it is an honor and a privilege for us to host this event and also to see people who have found recovery and found Big Book Recovery um, at an earlier age and do so with such um, passion and who uh, you're both inspirations to me I would just like to say that as we begin so to start our presentation each of the um, guests will be qualifying and Kira would you like me to start by sharing the screen Screen, or you're gonna let me know when to do that
1: I can let you know thank you okay
0: mm-hmm. would you like a time Kira
1: I'll, do I'll it myself if that's all right
0: no of course go ahead
1: okay <laughs> um, let me start that um, hi everyone my name is Kira uh, I am a compulsive reader and bulimic and I'm recovered and I'm very 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 grateful to be here today um, speaking with you all um, I'd like to Rachel and I are certainly going to get into a lot of what our recovery looks like and identifying in so I just want to tell you a little bit um, about what it was like for me and I am someone who came into program at 22 and uh, I just turned 25, so I've been in program for about two and a half years. So before that, I, I think I've always had this disease. I think the way I was raised did not help that. Um, but I just from four, or five years old, my earliest memories are tied up in feeling so uncomfortable in my body. And at that time, you know, maybe I was just a chubby, you know, four-year old, but I just remember feeling, bigger then and I I share often that that feeling never left you know being a little bit taller and having a little baby belly just I've until you know then I genuinely was you know over 100 pounds overweight um but I I um I didn't have a family I felt I could turn to they didn't um so I turned to food and I turned to numbing out any chance I got, and that was through food, it was through other substances, it was through just like shutting off my brain because the way my brain was, it was just, just a clouds of despair. It was just anything negative was just always rattling around. And I did sports, I was never the fastest, and I can remember coaches telling me to stand a certain way because, Kira, let's face it, you're not that fast, so this will give you. know position your feet this way to try to keep up with people and let's not even talk about trying to fit into uniforms or anything but i just developed this relationship with food that i couldn't break and i would learn everyone's schedules around me and binge in between those because you wouldn't catch me binging in front of people it it truly is a disease of isolation so there i was um isolated i think uh, a great way to put the state that I was at was I was just sleeping all day and watching Netflix and eating. And I went to a doctor's office one time and they're like, wow, like you had mono, like, did, like, did you know that? And I, I didn't because I just said that would just was the state of my life was just pure exhaustion. Um, anyway, so I went to college and I was still binging, learned the room, uh, the schedules of my two other roommates in the small room. And I couldn't physically eat as much as I was eating in high school, where I ended up weighing about 240 pounds at about the age of 17. So I couldn't physically eat as much as I was eating, but I still was binging. And then I found out how to purge. Um, and then there goes like the whole second dark side of this disease, because I was, binging and then I just immediately wanted to hit that undo button and I was purging and then you know my stomach was empty and I loved food so then I was just binging again and it really got to a point where I was afraid to eat anything because any first compulsive bite would lead to the binge would lead to the purge it truly is that addiction cycle that is described so eloquently and directly in the doctor's opinion which we'll like I mentioned dig into but I just was miserable. And I ended up losing about 90 pounds really rapidly. Uh, Amy, if you wouldn't mind, I almost forgot, if you wouldn't mind sharing my photos at this time. Here's a physical um, example of the way that I looked. And, um, and the bulimia was really just devastating to me. I was decaying in front of my own eyes. I had like scars on my hand, my teeth. I mean, my they're still damaged, but they turned bright yellow, and yeah. So that's what I looked like in high school. Of course, I don't have pictures for my largest size, but the top left is a picture of me in high school. Um, I was always wearing baggy clothes and flannels, and you know anything to cover up. Um, and then this the bottom left photo was in 2017 at my brother's wedding. I had to be zipped into that dress by you know, many people. And as I mentioned, that was college. So I had lost a little weight at that point. Then the bulimia in, in this, um, the upper right, I, you know, I'm smiling there, but I just was so broken because lo and behold, losing weight was not the answer, uh, especially when it was through such unhealthy measures. And then um, because I'm a youth, I, I guess I took a selfie of myself after a purge and I just, I just was so broken. Thank you, Amy um so I graduated college I really don't remember much of it um and I found I just I I was scared for what I was gonna do because I just felt so unwell and so crazy and I didn't you know I'd heard of eating disorders but I didn't think anything No, like the thoughts alone, you know, I would, I couldn't sleep at night. I I would wake up like to a panic attack. I just had a pit in my stomach and had nightmares. And just my last thought before I woke up was Kira, you're worthless. You're horrible. My first thought when I would wake up, same thing. So I had no idea about OA, let alone that everyone, um, there's so many people that relate to me and, um, I sought a therapist because I was like, oh, maybe she can help me with my anxiety. Maybe she can help me with my depression. Maybe she has a thing or two to say about food, but again, not knowing about OA. And she is an OA herself, you know, my higher power, like talk about a search and rescue mission, like talk about higher power being in my life long before I ever knew they existed was my therapist. Like just the way it all, I can like really trace it back to like how long my higher power has been like showing me these signs. So I think I had been going to therapy for um, probably like five or six months before I got the you know courage to, actually she told me if you don't go, like we're gonna have to talk about it. So I, I was, um, she's like, text me as soon as you go to your first meeting. So I went and thank God, right? Um, I was just welcomed with open arms and no one looked my age it's not true. Like one or two people looked my age, maybe a couple years older, but I I still heard in their shares my story and maybe their examples and I don't want to, you know, <laughs> spoil too much, but I really had to practice identifying in because these people didn't look like me. And remember at this point I had, you know, I was underweight coming in and I didn't know how it would work for me. And and it, it did slowly, it took me a year to get the year of abstinence that I have now. And I celebrated a year in November, which I'm very grateful for, but really what has rocket, you know, thank you, um, has just really rocketed me into the fourth dimension has been knowing and learning and pursuing this big book way of recovery. And I am I'm the first person that will be honest and say, I didn't like a thing about it. I wasn't shown it in my meetings. I w- couldn't relate to it. I mean, <laughs> surface level, if you take anything at surface level, like, you know, it was written so long ago by men who had a drinking problem, who were spewing this like Christian propaganda. And I just, why would I relate to that? Yet, I do now. And I, it took having an open mind and knowing that even being in the rooms, if I'm not being honest, you know, it's it's important. It's nice to know that you're not alone. It's It was huge for me to know that I'm not alone, but not pursuing recovery in an honest and open-minded way is not enough. So that's that's just basically what my journey has been like thus far um, in, in very general terms, terms. And I am just really grateful today. The way I live today is at my every best effort to be loving and my every best effort to, you know, give up time and help others. I know how broken and how horrible it feels to be on your own in this disease and i'm sure many of us do too and so how could i know all you know how could i learn what i've learned and experience what i've experienced and not you know be here today and try to share the message of of this hope so I'll, i'll end there and i'm just really grateful for what's to come with this workshop and uh rachel i yield the floor or back to amy
0: Whoever, thank you. No, no, Rachel, please. Thank you so much, Kira. Thank you for your introduction. It's wonderful to hear you qualify. And I look forward to hearing more of your thoughts on Big Book Recovery. But first, Rachel P, thank you so much for being here. Please just shout out when you would like me to share um, the slide with your photos.
2: Awesome, thank you, Amy, and thank you, Kira. Glad to be having this conversation with you in service to others, not in service to myself. Just wanted to say that out loud um and i'm going to time myself for 10 minutes so yeah I'll, I'll talk what it was like what happened and what it's like now um so yeah i was i'm certain i was born a compulsive eater i have other family members who are compulsive eaters and addicts and i like to think about it like i was born with the light switch installed and that's that previous position and then at some point it got flipped on it got switched on and Um, that's just a metaphor that I enjoy for myself. And for me, I think it was switched on very early. Um, I'll kind of talk a little bit about my childhood because it has so much to do with the manifestation of my disease. Um, I, when I was two years old, I was born in Denver, um, which is where I live now. And when I was two years old, I was diagnosed with leukemia, um, childhood leukemia. And Um, So it was, you know, the three years following of, of going through cancer treatments. and, And actually when I was two, we moved to Mount Laurel, New Jersey, and I was treated at Children's Hospital, Philadelphia, and I have no memories from that experience. So I think I disassociated. I think I blocked out so much of, of that experience. Um, and then, you know, we moved back to Denver around the time that I was five and, and, you know, I wasn't supposed to live like my, my parents told the doctors to take me off of chemo. Um, because the side effects were so bad and they, and they, they thought that I was going to die. Um, but by some miracle, I started—I went into remission. And so yeah, we moved back to Denver when I was five. And then when I was seven, um, so when my younger sister was two, she was also diagnosed with leukemia. So we both had the same form of leukemia um, and she was treated. And I remember you know, all of her treatment at the oncology office. And um, so it was, it was cancer and cancer and um, we both went to Disney World for Make-A-Wish and uh, we're both okay now, thank God. Um, <clears throat> we're both you know, healthy and happy. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, most of my childhood years were okay. You know, there was that trauma certainly. Um, you know, my parents were, were fairly good parents for us as kiddos, but my dad's anger started to kind of become expressed he, it turns out he was having some issues with addiction. Um, when my, and when I was 13, my parents divorced and then, um, my mom had a mental break and she had had a couple mental breaks prior in her life. Um, not during my lifetime. Um, well, maybe when I was a tiny, um, and you know, I was, when I was 14, some of you maybe have heard this, if you've heard my story, um, when I was 14, um, my brother and my sister went to go to, to my dad's apartment for the weekend, and I was at home with my mom and um, I, I woke up very late in the day because I had been sick that night and I woke up um, late in the afternoon and I, I found my mom, um, she had taken all the pills in the house and, and she she wasn't living anymore. Um, so she she died by suicide. Um, and I found her and it was just the two of us in the house. and um, and you know my I started gaining weight when I was like, eight or nine, um, if not younger. And neither of my siblings have have this disease, um, but I just, you know, I, I, I would start to eat certain foods and I could not stop. And, um, you know, but it was just constantly a clash between my, myself and my mother. Um, she really wanted me to lose weight. Um, and so, you know, we, we disagreed in that regard, or, or you know, we, we, we had issues in that regard. And, um, and like when she died, I was I was probably just over 200 pounds um, at 14 years old, probably, like, probably close to 220. Um, and then and, you know, I, whenever the memory of her of finding her came up, I would eat over it. And then, you know, throughout my high school years, my, my dad was an addict. He was addicted to meth. And when he would be coming down, I didn't know it at the time. But I found out later but he would be coming down from the high and he would verbally and emotionally abuse myself and my siblings and it physically abused my brother and so it was just walking on eggshells every day and it was miserable uh, it was a miserable existence and food was my everything food was my comfort um and I you know anytime that I thought about my mom any anytime that my dad yelled at me um you know we had the fight 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 response and I could I all I could and, and freeze and all I could do was freeze you know I couldn't leave the room because that meant hell on earth um and the one time that I did was the worst fight we ever had. And um, uh, and I, I couldn't fight, you know, I, I had no autonomy in that household. So I ate and my bedroom was in the basement. So I would, I would get the food from the kitchen after my dad was finished yelling and, and I had the kitchen to myself and then I would take it downstairs and I would eat. And and then I got at, at uh, 17, I started driving um, and, I, and I had access to a car. And then, I, you know, then it was like after the races, like. I could, you know, um, can we, yeah, we can talk about specific foods, like, for, so in high school, what a binge looked like for me was I would get off of, of school um, and go across the street to Chipotle and eat a Chipotle burrito, and then I would go to Starbucks and, and order a large, like, frappuccino, blended frappuccino, and then I would go to the King Super's, the grocery store in the same shopping center and get, like, a package of cosmic brownies and, like, uh, a little, like, whatever, gout pint of ice cream and that was like, I would eat that all in the span of like an hour or two. And that, that was like a standard binge for me. And often I would like take, like get more pastries and take them home and eat them. Um, and so so by the time I graduated high school, I you know, I went to the doctor to get my immunization shots for college and stepped on the scale. And I, I hadn't weighed in years and it just kept going up and up and up. it was one of those manual like metal scales and it read 272. And i was mortified and here um let's just go ahead and show the slide of my photos i almost forgot as well um yeah so so this this one at the top center is me in my first semester of college um about 275 um terrible acne um you can't you know see my body in this photo but i i was just so unhappy and I, I just i hated my body at every turn and you know Kara talked about those automatic negative thoughts like that was it was like a cloud over my head and everything. I saw everything at the world through this lens of I'm, I am insufficient. I am not enough. I like nobody will love me. Um, my body is disgusting. And um, I later learned that I, I have an autoimmune disorder. I have hypothyroidism. And one of the symptoms of that is, is quick weight gain. I also have another um, autoimmune disorder that's in remission. And I share this because if there's anyone else out there who can relate, me Um, it's called it's something like hydrogen titus separativa and it's like i would get these really painful like blood and pus filled boils like under my like on on my armpits and i still have scarring from that i haven't had a breakout in years thank god because i've been able to to get healthy but um that was one of the shames that i carried you know like no one's gonna love me because i'm so disgusting and just at every turn that's what i thought about myself um the bottom center photo is is when I graduated with my uh college graduation ceremony and I had lost some weight and I'll share more about that. Um and then the the leftmost photo is me on my 21st birthday. Um and then the, the rightmost photo is is me more recently um after a weight loss of 115 pounds, um, which I've been able to release thanks to this program and and keep off thanks to this program and um and my higher power, and all of you. Um, so yeah, we can stop sharing now. Um, so I know I'm running out of time, um, but I'll share that you know when I went to college, I started to exercise, and I couldn't binge the way that I had been before. And I just became obsessed with weight loss. It became my sole mission in life. Um, so I, I I actually realized I didn't qualify earlier, um, but I you know I'm Rachel P. Compulsive eater, food addict, exercise bulimic, and orthorexic. Recovered for today. So, you know, I, I say exercise lame like an orthorexic because so much of my disease in my 20s was, all in my late teens and 20s was, was like just obsession with weight loss um, and I was successful. Like I lost 70 and then I gained 50 back by the time I graduated college. And then, you know, I lost, I was diagnosed with a thyroid issue and the restriction just got like so much worse. The self-will lever was pulled and I lost hundred from, you know, net from my heaviest. Um, and at 22 years old after graduating college, I came into a meeting and um, I heard them read the steps and use the word God. And, you know, I was in a, I I grew up in a religious household. And when my mom died, I was in the middle of the confirmation process. And after she died, I was like, if God could do this, I want nothing to do with God. So I was an atheist for many years. And at 22, when I came into that meeting, I was like, nope, I guess I have to figure this out. So it took me another six years of experimenting and I did lose the weight. But I, I came to understand losing the weight losing 100 pounds did not fix all my problems and you know for so long I thought that it would um, turns out what what could solve all my problems you know uh, every like one day at a time is the spiritual solution that's offered in the big book um, and like this is my daily medicine and I I need I need it every day I need to work the steps every day in order to like be person to be the woman that my higher power like created me to be um and yeah we'll talk more about what that looks like for us and um yeah so i will pass with that
0: thank you uh thanks to both of you so much for so beautifully and honestly portraying the symptoms of this disease, the recognition of powerlessness, um, and how you know a lot of times we can trace this back um, through our lives. Thank you both for sharing so beautifully. And um, something that you touched on—I mean, Kira talked about this, and then Rachel, you also talked about it. So you know you have this problem, and you're a and you're a young person. How do you how do you identify in? with this organization, with this book, with this spiritual solution. I would love to hear the two of you talk about that.
3: You go ahead, Kira.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, We have a lot to talk about. Would it be okay to first start with this letter that was issued by um, a young person's World Service Committee? Okay, um, it says, while we may be tempted to say, thank goodness you got it young, remember that relief for a young newcomer starts with relating to a fellow about their present pain and the courage it takes to face one's disease, not in the relief of the years of suffering they may have prevented. Tradition five, each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Enough said, recovery is not contingent on age, but on one's willingness to work the program honestly to the best of their ability. As a fellowship, it is important that we do not water down the message to suit personalities, but rather share our experience as it was carried to us." Thank you. So, yeah, Rachel and I have a lot of ways that we identify in. Um, I I would first, I guess, say that for me, it was knowing that my disease did not need to look like your disease. And what I mean by that is the symptoms. of how your disease manifested. And it was forgetting what age you were, it was forgetting um, what your top weight, lowest weight, even like how you binge or how you restricted, how you purged. There's so many different methods to all of this, but it's methods to the madness, I guess. And it was the hurt that I heard in people's voices that I could connect into. And I'm not sure, Rachel, do you have anything to add about that?
2: Yeah, I'll just share, I mean, we'll talk more about the desperation piece and, and the willingness, but I was so beaten down by the disease um, that I I was just like ready. And I, as well, I didn't mention this, but I came in through a, th- a therapist as well. Um, I came to see a therapist randomly and wrote on my paperwork that I was ready to talk about, that I wanted to talk, talk about my binge eating, which was huge because of that. It, was, it was my secret that I carried for so long. Um, especially after losing the weight, like people didn't know that I was binging. Um, but yeah, that very first meeting I came to when I was 22, I identified out, like I, there were two other women there. They didn't have physical recovery to my recollection. Um, and I was just looking for every reason, not to, not for this, not to be my solution. Um, but that's the second meeting I came to at 28 years old and I'm 31 now. I, it was a speaker meeting. Um, and even though this woman like was in her 70s and bulimic, and I don't identify as bulimic, I do in other ways. But I heard my story because I was just ready. Um. So I so listening, like actively listening to what people have to offer, and identifying in, and then anything I don't identify with, just understand. Okay, that's where we differ. But like honing in on where it is that we do relate I think is so important
1: and I definitely think like our disease has a way of just convincing us what like things are normal like because it was the only reality that we knew and most of us only knew it wasn't like this disease manifested later in our lives for me it was all I knew which is this unhealthy relationship with food and my body and I was talking to a sponsee one time, and she was describing, you know, I don't think I really belong here. You know, I've only gained and lost, you know, the same twenty pounds, ten pounds. You know, every semester I would gain it, every summer I would lose it. And I, and I was like, just think about what you just said. You know, that that's not how normal eaters function. That's not how normal civilians outside of people needing program, um, needing a spiritual solution, like function. And I think it's really, it makes sense why we identify out because that's our disease on loudspeaker. That's our disease trying to say anything it can to, you know, it senses something good is here in program and it wants us to, you know, like retreat as quickly as possible. So totally needing to be honest and addressing all of these thoughts and loops that ran through our heads, you know, our whole lives, I think is really crucial.
2: Yeah. And if I can piggyback on that as well, like... When that second meeting I came to, I my therapist had put me on a food plan, Um, and you know the Big Book talks about you know something to the effect of like we recommend approaching you know the alcoholic with their with when they have a clear head, Um, and I I think that sometimes can be helpful, and I want to just emphasize like clear head is not just not in the food like not actively binging, but it's also like not restricting and not purging and not over-exercising, and not obsessing about the food and how many calories I'm taking in and like obsessing like about my body um so it's like having just a just to start just a modicum of willingness to to have that humility that's like I don't have all the answers and I need help and listen
1: definitely and I think what really helps is like having actual literature to back this up. So I'm going to make an effort today to keep addressing back to the literature, to our text, to the big book, to these letters, you know, we don't have to create new ideas if we can, you know, ride on, you know, the shoulders of everyone. So with that said, Amy, if you wouldn't mind sharing the next thing we have from the big book. Um, Rachel, do you want to read this or I can read it?
2: Oh, sure. I can read it. Yeah. Um, If we are planning to stop drinking there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. Young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think that they can stop as he did on their own willpower. We doubt if many of them can do it because none will really want to stop and hardly one of them because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired will find he can win out. Several of our crowd men of 30 or less had been drinking only a few years, but they found themselves as helpless as those who had been drinking twenty years.
1: Thank you, and that's for more about alcoholism. And it'll make more sense if you guys crack them in the book. But just the the concept there is just it doesn't matter how long we've been eating compulsively for. It doesn't matter how old we are. None of that matters. We and it's saying like few will few will be willing to to stop. Um, we the willingness is so important the, and it's for me before it was it, it, it was fueled from knowing how bad it was for me it, it was like nothing I have done thus far has worked eating a granola bar and then running at the gym for hours didn't work you know eat you know <laughs> starving purging rest- like that didn't work for me maybe maybe just maybe away in the spiritual talk they say can work It just, you know, that willingness to identify in, because if it's easy to identify out, it's harder to identify in. So, yeah.
2: Okay. Well, oh god. Sorry. I was gonna say, yeah. There's this fantasy. There was this fantasy for me that like this would disappear one day. Especially before I came into program, it was like this conditional idea that if I lost the weight, everything will be okay, and I'll stop binging. You know once I once I, if i get to it like a good weight like it'll all just fall into place and fix itself and i i think we have to dispel that illusion you know and this quote kind of talks about that that um you know there's a lurking notion that we will be immune to alcohol and and so that's so much the step one experience like admitting i am a compulsive eater my life is unmanageable yeah and regard to that step one experience,
0: that's a perfect transition. Regarding that step one experience, how do you, how did you um, bridge that journey, that recognition, or how did you coexist in the recognition of powerlessness? When, at least my perception is, is that you come from a generation that's been like tested and 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 all of these pressures and and being in full vision on social media like the pressure for perfectionism that might be in your space competing with this concept of powerlessness any thoughts on
2: yeah I think we are especially as it relates to food I think just society in general is kind of conditioned to believe that weight, and food is about willpower. And, you know, I, 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 before I came in, you know, not quite three years ago, like for realsies, I thought this was like my problem to fix. And I learned, you know, through the, this work, through the big book, I'll be working this stuff through the big book with my sponsor. It's not about willpower. It's not. And, and I, I really had to kind of break that down. And, and that's step one. And Just for me personally, I think so much of my step one experience was those six years between 22 and 28 when I just went out and and I lost the weight, but I was like, it's a progressive disease. And so like my crazy, my insanity around the food and restriction just got worse and worse and worse. And it was just this insidious secret. And I was just so beat down by the disease that I, I just had the willingness to do whatever it took.
1: And I think for me one of the most beautiful things that I heard in a workshop with this person who is a therapist and in AA for 30 years something like that he told he talked about the big lie and I'll never forget this he said the big lie that we always told ourselves and I guess continued to was that things have to look a certain way in order for me to feel okay And that was completely me with placing expectations on everything outside of the rooms. And then within the rooms, this person's younger than me. And they just celebrated, you know, they got to 30 days before me, you know, like it was, it was as if it was just this race and Mm -hmm. um, and that this, I think there's a healthy amount of inspiration that can be driven um, and pulled from, from, you know, speaking with our fellows and connecting in, but, you know, if my disease was like this for me, then, then I need to work my program, you know, and I say this, you know, under the guidance of the big book and with the sponsor and everything, but, you know, maybe for me, I really have to practice honesty because that was my number one defect and someone else honesty comes differently to them. So I don't need to be perfect. That's an illusion. And I can say that to myself a hundred times a day and still, you know, beat myself up about it, but it's just, it's true. I, I just need to strive to be better and to be good and to be loving. However that looks in a day.
0: That's beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much for that thought. Um, can you talk a little bit, just again, because some people who are, you know, might be coming to this, you spoke a little bit about like the, the somebody who might not have a, you know, a bottom comparable to people who have lived in this disease longer. We know it's progressive as we've said. So um, can you speak a little bit about um What is there other than like the food behaviors and the weight that you can use to sort of identify in when you're, or help somebody identify in or things you can tell about your own story along those ways?
1: That's another beautiful cue in to a a screen share if you don't mind Amy. This one comes from the AA 12 and 12 on step one. This was one of the first things that I read that I was like, oh my goodness. And it's a big page, but here's just an excerpt. Alcoholics who still had their health, their families, their jobs, and even two cars in the garage began to recognize their alcoholism. As this trend grew, they were joined by young people who were scarcely more than potential alcoholics. They were spared that last 10 or 15 years of literal hell the rest of us had gone through. Since step one requires an admission that our lives had become unmanageable, how could people such as these take this step? It was obviously necessary to raise the bottom the rest of us had hit to a point where it would hit them <clears throat> by going back in our own drinking you know our own eating histories we can show that years before we realized it, we were out of control that our drinking even then was no mere habit that it was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression so to to really quickly uh one of the lines in that reading it says uh we were in the beginning of a fatal progression and that called to me like no other and I called you know a couple of people who are here with us today and I was like does this mean like can this mean what I think it means and it, it tells me that just because I'm young you know to be in the beginning of a fatal progression implies that I'm already in and within this fatal progression so even though I'm young and even though I only gained and lost the same 10-20 pounds I have this disease I am powerless that that step one is already true whether or not I take that step one so then that rock bottom conversation raising it to meet us to me you know if if someone can't identify with the you know driving to four fast food restaurants or ordering off their phone so it looks like it's not just going to you um, think about the thinking think about the obsessive thoughts you had can you ever like spend a moment in just peace? Do you hear quiet or do you just hear these like negative thoughts? These are things that really help me to deepen my, my, my understanding of, of the step one experience. And I'm sure Rachel has something to add there too.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, that's sort of partially why I identify as a compulsive or food addict exercise, bulimic and orthorexic. Because my intent behind that, and I just sort of recently started doing that within the past, I don't know, several months. My intent behind that is if, if somebody else hears those terms and it's, especially a newcomers, starts to think, oh, maybe I'm an exercise or what is orthorexia? Let me Google that, um, which it, if you're not familiar, is like an obsession with wellness. Um, you know, and so, so, yeah, finding the ways to identify in, um, and for me, what was really striking in terms of, of that uh, piece was I, I, you know, I went to a retreat in the mountains of Colorado in uh, a big book retreat. It was kind of like a vision you retreat in um, like the, my first couple months and like four months into recovery. And the speaker like just explained the doctor's opinion in a way that I, I hadn't heard before or hadn't read for myself and describes like the twofold illness of the, the allergy of the body and the mental twist of the mind. And I just remember so viscerally like hearing her share like share that and how it was relevant to her and her story and just relating in and thinking, oh my gosh, like this is for me. Like I, I knew, but, but after hearing having that broken down for me, um, like contextually and like today speak, it, from the lens of this person's the speaker's story, I was like, I know I'm in the right place. Like I know that this is the solution for me. So like really contextualizing the the beautiful language of the big book and more like modern speak so that we can relate to it in our stories and the manifestations of our eating disorders is really important. That's a great that's a great lead in to you're talking
0: about like figuring out how to get the message out of the big book so and everything you've talked about about frame of mind is beautiful how about some like distinct best practices actual suggestions tips for reading the big book in a way to help you absorb the information any thoughts on that
1: yeah definitely as rachel mentioned understanding it the way that it was in the time and the context that it was written was really important for me so like using a dictionary to actually look up the meanings of words <clears throat> um, has been really helpful, and was part of you know some of my step ex, uh, assignments. And you know, it's you know a lot of words. Have, you know, I know the connotation of them. I know what they mean today. But you know, when they're saying the word pity in the big book, they don't mean go oh like I'm so sorry for you, Mr. Sick Man. It's it's more just like I have compassion. You know, I have and to understand that in the language. Was really helpful for me. Um, I, <clears throat> I'm a bit of an internet sleuth, so there's a bunch of blogs and you know forums and discussions on the Big Book. And because there's so many Twelve Step fellowships, you can find all these perspectives and all these like wonderful takes on the Big Book. And of course, podcasts and meetings. And it, just because I've taken my Step One doesn't mean I can't you know attend a Step One workshop and and learn about it and can just continue that pursuit of, you know, knowledge is not, you know, everything, of course, but just continue deepening my understanding has helped me a lot.
2: Yeah. And I'll add to that. You know, I, I love that the, you know, looking up definitions of words, that's huge. Um, but I, I also love like listening to podcasts um, because there are so many different brilliant speakers. I mean, they they're, they're, they are, just compulsive readers, just like I am, um, but so, so many people who have kind of helped to break down the words contained in this book, um, so yeah, and just like investing as much time as I can, to, especially at first, to, to learning it, to, to really reading it like a textbook, um, you know, I, I, I heard this on a speaking meeting several months ago, but, like coming into the program, like I needed a brainwashing, like my brain literally needs to be washed because I spent so much time and energy on what I was going to eat, what I wasn't going to eat, my like, like counting calories, um, you know, when and how long I was going to exercise, what food groups I was going to take out, you know, in reaction to images I had had and, and et cetera. Um, and all the other behaviors that other people, you know, might resonate with that I, I needed to replace all that time and energy spent on the disease with, the words in this book and, and the tools of the program, the, the, the steps and the tools.
1: And I love that point, Rachel, because I was like, how, back when I'm going to one meeting a week, I was like, how am I going to, you know, give up my Wednesday night? Like, this is a huge drag.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And I loved when, uh, I'm sure someone said it, they were like, how, like, how much time like truly how much time do I spend driving from place to place to get my binge food? How much time do I s- like spend up at night, just all like a hundred percent of the time is the answer um, versus the amount of time I spend now. Yes, I give up time and we'll get into the service and all of that, but identifying in and, and knowing this is what's best is that I'm investing time into things that are good and positive. And uh, it's, it's a real blessing. <laughs>
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Let's, for a second, if we could circle back onto the progressive nature of the illness, because that's certainly relevant to somebody who might be at an earlier stage of the manifestation of their addiction. Can either of you speak to that, the progressive nature?
1: I think it's similar to that Gain 20 10 pound example that's what it was for you at 21 what could it become i know just in the ages between 14 and 17 my disease showed me that i was progressive between the ages of 17 and 21 it showed me how deadly fatal progressive it was and also you, know, i think connecting with young people is amazing but listen listen to everyone listen to your elders you know like my own sponsor who is amazing um had similar experiences at my age and then went on to gain and lose the same 100 pounds, 100 plus pounds. So it, it is progressive, Don't, like believe that, take, take people's words for it. Why would, you, you know, it's just that to me, it is progressive and I've seen it firsthand and heard it.
2: Yeah, just like, and this did not come from me, um, but just as the disease is progressive, so is recovery. You know, and so, like, when I came in, I, I truly was experiencing the unmanageability, powerless and unmanageability of, of my disease, and just so desperate, such that I was willing to do whatever my sponsor told me to do. Um, and, and thank goodness she got recovered through the big book, and that was a godsend to me. Um, and then, yeah, the more time and energy I invest in working the steps, the way the big book outlines and, and the tools that support me like at first it's a lot of shifting of habits and energy and time and it can feel overwhelming but with repeated action action on a daily basis it gets easier it becomes repetition and I you know as as it's become habitual I free up more time and space to invest more of, of my self into what's serving me in my recovery and then everything else outside of recovery and I, w- I also want to say I don't know that this is but we'll talk about this later. But, you know, for me, I, I, ha- I have to believe that my recovery comes first, always. Because if I'm not recovered today, I can't be available in any of my relationships. I can't, I can't be a good employee. I can't, I'm, I'm in grad school right now for counseling, actually. I can't be a good student. You know, I, I can't, I can't be a good friend. I can't be a good girlfriend. Like, none of that happens successfully if I'm not, recovered for today. And so, you know, I, I spend the requisite amount of time on my recovery as needed so that I can show up as, as the woman that I, I know that I can be.
1: And the big book says as we look back, we had feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point we feel we could quit on our own willpower. If we're in this beginning of a fatal progression, it's it it is progressive. It's progressive.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, before we move on to um, service, which is such a beautiful big piece of program that I know both of you are, are just wonderful, wonderfully um, involved in in your program. Is there anything else that you wanna tie up with regards to identifying in or powerlessness or progression, anything before we shift to the thoughts of young people in service in this program?
3: I wanted to, I I was going to jump in and it got noisy here because Rachel, you had um, talked about um, showing up for other people in your world. Like if you don't take care of your program first, right? You can't be a good employer. You can't be. And that's the part I'm, I'm very interested in as um, you know, as a young person, right? Who has adults in your sphere who believe oftentimes that the adults believe that they know best what's right for little old you. Um, How do you you carry that conviction about this is my program, this takes priority into the relationships in your world um, and still practice the principles, which sort of means that we're tolerant of other people's perspectives. How do you maintain your strength and what you need to do for you and still be the, sister, daughter, niece, aunt, whatever role that is for both of you.
2: I fail a lot. Um, I, I learned by failing and I'm very much a people pleaser, a codependent. I mean, I think that's largely because of a lot of the trauma that I went through. Um, and so like learning to say no, like no is, is a complete sentence, no period. Um, with compassion, with kindness, has been like so cute in my work in this program and in therapy. Um, but yeah, like having tolerance for people, like the sick man's prayer is so important and just like imperfectly working steps four through nine and 10 as needed. And like, yeah, when things feel difficult with people, I've got to see, okay, what's my part in it with compassion for myself, um, not continual self-flagellation but like compassion is so important for me in my step work and deciding to behave differently next time in accordance with who my higher power would have me be and and program is a great place to practice that you know the people like with my my relationships with my sponsor my sponsees my fellows and programs like that's kind of a, a vacuum where I can learn those skills imperfectly
1: Yeah, I definitely relate to what Rachel said. And just knowing that I spend the time, you know, at meetings, on outreach, praying so I can undergo this entire psychic change so I can show up in ways I never showed up in relationships before. And yes, that means I see my boyfriend less. It means I don't often, uh, I can't hang out with my friends at the drop of a a hat as if they say that. Um, but I, but when I am showing up, I'm showing up with love and I'm present and my mind is not on, you know, whatever is like on that plate over there. And it's definitely a work in progress and I'm learning balance and I'm learning, uh, being okay with just being, you know, with, with Kira, I'm getting to know Kira for the first time in my life. And I, yeah, I I pray that always continues to develop and, and grow and, that I can continue looking at it too.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Um, do you wanna hit one last slide before shifting to
1: sure. service? Would you please share, they stopped in time. This is from, it's an unmarked page, but it's technically 279 in the big book. It's uh, when there are stories. I, I feel bad reading all these, but, um. It says, we think that about one half of today's incoming AA members were never advanced cases of alcoholism, though given time all might have been. Most of these fortunate ones have had little or no acquaintance with delirium with hospitals, asylums, and jails. Some were drinking heavily and there had been occasional serious episodes, but with many drinking had been little more than a sometimes uncontrollable nuisance. Some seldom had any of these lost their either Lost either health, business, family, or friends. Why do men and women like these join AA? The 12 who now tell their experience answer that question. And those are the stories that follow this. They saw that they had become actual or potential alcoholics, even though no serious harm had yet been done. They realized that repeated lack of drinking control when they really wanted control was the fatal symptom that spelled problem drinking. Thus, this plus mounting... Emotional disturbances convinced them that compulsive alcoholism already had them, that complete ruin would only be a question of time. Seeing this danger, they came to AA. They realized that in the end, alcoholism could be as mortal as cancer. Certainly, no sane man would wait for a malignant growth to become fatal before seeking help. And you can stop there, but basically, we don't wait to hit the bottom, you know, raise the bottom, identify in. This is an opportunity, this is an amazing opportunity for us as young people to identify in. And I certainly heard a lot of stories of people who came in at my age and left and came back 30 years later, 100 pounds heavier, having you know, damaged relationships and had no contact with grandchildren. I, couldn't, I can't relate to that now, but that can be me and that can be you. So that's why we put all this effort into identifying in and, um, and then now the topics that will follow about what our, what that looks like today in program.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I would love to shift now um, because you've alluded to it a few times to the topic of how both of you do service because service is such a big part of our program and um, it keeps us recovered, and again, sometimes you come into the rooms, and you know you're looking for an opportunity to find it, especially through reaching out to other people. Can the two of you speak about service for a little while?
2: Yeah, I can start. Um, yeah, uh, service keeps you coming back. <sighs> that's that's the saying, right? Um, but it's that's it's true. Um, two things for me personally that have kind of saved my ass and saved me from relapsing um, because I am a compulsive eater with a hopeless hopeless condition um, are sponsoring and sending my food to my sponsor every day. And, you know, there are so many ways, so so many behaviors that we can do in alignment with the steps and the tools. But for me, those are just two that stand out. Um, and, And just kind of to highlight sponsoring, like I started, so I worked the steps in about six months um in the second half of 2018 um and I started sponsoring right away and I was really afraid to sponsor um because I was like I am one of my defects is perfectionism um and most most compulsive leaders I talk to that's the case for them as well so I I don't know I'm not alone there but I was like I need to say exactly the right things like I have to save these people like I have to save this person who I'm sponsoring and, and and do it do it exactly right or else they're gonna, you know, fail or leave program or whatever. And I had to learn the hard way that that's that's not true. Um, I have to let people. I have to, you know, stick man's prayer, like be an acceptance of where people are in their journeys. Um, but since I started sponsoring, I, I I tend to always have at least one sponsor. um Right now, I have two, and that's my max. My my max has been three previously, but through sponsoring, like. We read the big book together. We we talk through what they're going through together, um, and like I'll there I'll have words come out of my mouth, and I'm like, where'd that come from? Like I'm so wise, no. Um, but like I'll have just like God moments as I'm like working with others. Um, and and it's just like truly a, a miracle of the program and just reinforcement of these principles again and again because I will get amnesia if I don't remind myself of the hopeless condition that I have that I was born with and that was switched on at a really young age. And, uh, and just that continual like reinforcement, like working someone else through the steps reminds me of, to, to be vigilant with my disease. Um, so yeah, I kind of chose to like highlight sponsoring but I think we could talk about a lot but Kira, I'm curious to, to hear like, what comes to mind for you in terms of service.
1: Yeah, I mean, sponsoring has been incredible for me as well. And I can tell you, I thought I have this amazing sponsor, how am I ever going to? I don't know, like, I don't, I don't know what page number, you know, this quote from the big book is on, like, how can I ever, you know, like, it's okay, like, I have learned so much more about I mean, everything and I've gone so much deeper. Everything I'm sharing with you today is is are things that I learned and came to an understanding of, you know, past working the steps through the big book for the first time. Like every time I get to and it's not been that I haven't been sponsoring that long, but it's just been such a joy. It's been amazing to me. And I strongly, you know, encourage and it there's this quote from the family afterward on page 124 and I don't have that memorized, I'm reading that. Uh, It says, showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem to be worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thoughts that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. So to me, that really stands out because as I, I believe shared in my very intro introduction, my intro introduction was that I, I see now that like, and I wasn't this way at first. So if you're not a grateful compulsive reader right now, like that's okay. But because I, I do feel a lot of gratitude today, I know that like the pain I went through serves a purpose in that I can connect with other people. I can relate to other people. I can know the dark corners of this disease. And just as I've said, like utter hatred for yourself and for the world around you and i can now say like yes i've been there i i relate to you and here i am now and i don't feel those ways now and it was through a spiritual solution and it was through working this program so sponsorship has been wonderful for me but like the first thing i ever first service i ever did was i'm a pretty anxious person so i would get to my that wednesday meeting like 15, 20, 30 minutes early and just sit in my car because I didn't like to be late to places. I would just be sitting in my car on my phone. And I was, I realized like, well, I'm already here. I guess I could help the uh, opening up crew put out chairs. And that's how I started. And from there, you know, and I'm putting out chairs, still not talking to anyone or people are talking to me and I'm too scared to talk to them. But that's where it started for me. And it's really grown from there. Now it's a very intricate, integral part of my program today and i know it is for rachel too that's how we met was giving service she helps um helps to lead and get speakers for this wonderful thursday young persons meeting uh, that's in the chat and i help for the for a monday one and for a wednesday one and so meetings and service there and just i've enjoyed um, service at the intergroup level and, and above and it's just been amazing because as Rachel said that was the thing that was keeping me going at first it was like one oh I don't want my sponsor to like be mad at me if I leave <laughs> and two oh well I have a key to this oh yeah because I got built up to I got promoted to having a key to the building that's pretty cool um, but uh, like if I don't show up there's you know so it just it got outside of myself it was a practice in thinking of others beyond just myself and you know I love the saying like for someone who didn't think much of themselves I thought of myself too much something like that like I w- I was very selfish in my thoughts it was always about me so and then Rachel I know um we did this young people's retreat if you want to like mention that at all it was so fantastic
2: yeah that was two weeks ago today I believe. Um yeah we it was the first ever young Christians retreat and uh, world service had kind of been thinking about doing it for the past couple of years and I kind of jumped on board um, just because I got connected with the, the world service young persons committee's chair through that Thursday night meeting that I kind of helped, helped put together or um, help maintain um, yeah like and I think it's so important and it's been so important for me to have like regular meetings I go to and that I do service at so My Monday night meeting um, and my Thursday night meeting, I go to without fail, unless I have something major come up. And for my Monday night meeting, I am the treasurer and I often lead the meeting. For the Thursday night meeting, like I find speakers and like, you know, help um, get people to script and just kind of do service there. And and so like making sure that I'm committed and like Kira said, like dependable, like somebody's depending on me. Um, is so important because like pre-recovery, I would cancel plans all the time because I had just had a binge and I wasn't feeling up to going to a party, or I would go to a party and like pick at food all the me all the while like obsessing about food and what I was gonna eat when I got home, and then I would go home and binge. And so all that say, yeah, I would I would often like cancel plans and blow off friends, and like friendships would disintegrate because I I couldn't be dependable. And in recovery again, that's that vacuum that teaches me how to, how to be a person that other people can trust and depend upon. It's it's so important. And yeah, I'm like, I'm so committed to this recovery journey and what, and so grateful for what it's given me. And I want to see other people, you know, benefit from it as well. And like have the promises come true for them. I know that's not for me to control, but you know, because I've, I've gained so much from this program, like, I want to pay that forward. And, you know, I, one of the, one of the words that's really important to me in my recovery journey is altruism, um, which is mentioned in the doctor's opinion twice. Um, it says on page 22, Roman numerals, we work out a solution on the spiritual as, altru- as altruistic plane. And later on, it says, we feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing has Nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. And the definition of of altruism, altruistic is the belief in or practice of disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. So like pre-recovery, I was just obsessed with myself at every turn. Like, what do people think of me? What do they think of my body, my personality? Am I funny enough? Am I smart enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I desirable enough? Like all the enough, and like I would body check like every reflective surface I pass. This is still something. This is still a, a behavior that I struggle with. Every every reflective surface, I would I would check my body and just think, how is this person seeing my body, or how is an imaginary person seeing my body? Like my perception is someone else's non-existent perception. It was just continual self-absorption. But altruism is like selfless concern for others and that combined with spirit, the spiritual program and we'll talk more about spirituality later that is what keeps me sane and connected and well and like recovered every day so giving of myself is like giving to myself but it has to be selfless <laughs>
1: And just to point out what Rachel just did was like pulling words from the doctor's opinion and looking them up, like using that dictionary tool and seeing like really how we can identify and make that language work in our lives. And Rachel, as you were speaking, I didn't think of this until just now, but there's this line in the doctor's opinion where Dr. Silkworth is signing off and he says something along the lines of you you may like, rely something about entirely. entirely on everything they say about themselves I'm sorry if I butchered that but yes and I, I that line to me is amazing because if you mm-hmm. think of an addict and you think of who I was in my disease no <laughs> you couldn't rely on me I couldn't rely on myself and just the way you were describing showing up for your service and your commitments like we can be relied on now. Like it's, it's an amazing, that's a miracle. That's an, it's amazing. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) That's lovely. That is so lovely. And I just, okay. So you've spoken about these, the big book retreat or the young person's retreat and these young person's meetings. So hypothetically, if I was a young person who really wished that there was a weekly young person's meeting on say like step study or something, do you have any, advice for hypothetical me and what I should do about that.
1: Uh, If you're here now and present, I just posted a couple that Rachel and I attend in the chat that are young person specific. If you're listening to it recorded, I certainly recommend searching on OA.org and there's a filter that you can search young persons. I think it's under the special topic filter um, and you'll find us, you'll find all of us and I could tell you this movement is growing and, and we're joining together and there's group chats out there and there's workshops and there's um, just wonderful things forming and coming together, so.
0: Is it difficult to start
1: a young
4: person's meeting?
1: I would say no. In my experience, people wanna hear from us and that we do have a voice and that uh, a lot of inner groups such as the one hosting us right now was
5: inc-
1: incredibly Mid Hudson Intergroup, um, incredibly accommodating to supporting and giving a voice to young people. So if you if there's something specific that you want to start an intergroup with, I mean, I know Rachel and I would be happy to help anyone across you know the world start that. And there's amazing resources to do so.
2: Yeah, and I'll mention as well. Like I, I'm a board member on my local intergroup. And we recently started a young person's committee as part of the inner group that me and, and two others are part of. And so take, take initiative and like get that started and talk to other young people and get, get an idea of, of what they do for service and, and do that or you know, come up with, with other ways. I mean, I think something that came out of the retreat a couple of weeks ago is that somebody decided to kind of get the ball rolling on starting a young person's inner group like an inner group dedicated to young people and, and I, I haven't been able to be involved with that personally but I, I know that they had a meeting to discuss getting it off the ground and and that this is like a, whole, a a new ingenious idea and maybe it'll happen maybe it won't, I don't know but it's this awesome like yeah we, we can we are creative and have ideas and um and and things to contribute and things to say and and you know age age doesn't matter so much because we all have this disease, we are all equals in these rooms.
5: Ain't nothing but a number. Together.
2: Exactly.
3: Absolutely, could you speak more about um, how to specifically then carry the message to young people? Like what, pretend that you know, you're you having this dialogue with this young person's committee that you're a part of, what sort of ideas are you bringing um, to then carry, besides you know, having these meetings, how do we reach how do we reach the, the young person out there? I know that that's um, something that we're very excited about. Um.
2: Yeah, so, so my young persons committee, I mean we've only had a couple meetings because we've just been coming together for a couple months. but you know we talked about like social media engagement, you know, and you know, I think we're going to start with Instagram and maybe do something with TikTok down the line. Um, I'm 31 so I'm like I don't really know TikTok I'm not on TikTok but so I feel old here but age is just a number Um, (laughs) uh, and then yeah we we also uh, I mean resource sharing I think is just so important like connecting and and I know like a couple people on this meeting from my Thursday night meeting are just so good at that like reaching out sharing resources talking to one another because this is a disease of isolation like calling somebody up and or put it, even putting it in the chat of your meeting of your young person's meetings or otherwise like hey i know about these young people's meetings and these things that young people in oa are doing and like share it
1: definitely it's been a, a huge blessing has been realizing there's other people my age out there and in program and just to be able to bridge those those gaps that is just been incredible and everything rachel said i just want a second just showing up who I am as a recovered person. I have friends who not saying they, you know, joined program, but they definitely came to a couple meetings seeing what had happened to me. And it was, I mean, that meant everything to me, you know, just for even, them to even try just to be curious I think is a big, a big thing. So practicing these principles in all our affairs.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I would love to shift towards, as you said before, talking about spirituality and how a young person comes to um, align with the spiritual principles of this program. Before we shift, is there anything else you wanted to say or share on service? All right, shift away spirituality both of you spoke and I know that I had the same experience an issue with the god in the steps and that this was a spiritual solution I came from a place and both of you spoke that way don't know that that's specific to young people but it certainly might be um please talk about your um the the birth and growth of your spiritual experience and how you came to that
2: Yeah, I'll start. Um, yeah, I think sort of, I hear this throughout all, all ages and program, but I think especially pervasive among young people is this distinction between religion and spirituality. And I know for myself, I grew up in a religious household and I, I do think that religion can get people to spirituality, to a, a personal connection. It just didn't do that for me because the God that I, grew up with was a punitive god was was this omnipotent white man with the beard up in the sky who was going to send me to hell if I wasn't good enough or if I didn't go to church every Sunday you know and no shade at all to religion and to religious practices um I had like on my fourth step I had to work through resentment against organized religion you know and now I'm able to see like it really does serve a lot of people it just it didn't get me to where I needed to get or, or, you know, where I could have gotten. And so, yeah, for me, I had this interesting journey of like religion up until age 14. And then I did have a little um, experimentation with, with Wicca. Like I wanted, I was exploring, like trying to become a witch in my teen years for a couple of years. And with that, you know, I created my own deity and, but even so, at the time, like, I, I kind of latched on to an existing mythical deity, a, a higher power, not one that I created myself. And so, so that key, that piece about creating one of my own understanding was, was so huge for me. Um, I was an atheist from ages, like, 16 to 27 or 28, um, and it just had no tolerance for religion or spirituality of any kind. And then, you know, the disease beat me down so much that I was, like, just ready um, to have an open mind and admit, I don't have the answers. I'm, I like my willpower is low, like power with a lowercase p, higher power is power with a capital P for me. Um, and I would not use the word God at first. Like anytime we would read the steps in meetings, I would close my mouth when, when they said God out loud. But what was what, what helpful for me personally was just use the word trust no, I'm not this power. There's something greater than me. And I would just sit in, in meditation and prayer, um, you know, when I was working to two and three, especially, and just trust. I trust. I trust that there's something greater than me. And that was really my, my word at, the, at that time. Later, I did adopt the word God just because it's just a word and it's, it's, it's nomenclature and it's kind of the best that I can think of. But I also interchangeably use it with you know, God, higher power, higher self, inner wisdom, um, the universe, you know, it's the interconnectedness of all humanity, um, of all existence. Um, so, yeah, that that for me, shifting from the religion to the spirituality was a higher power of my own understanding. And, and I'm so grateful that, you know, step three articulates that because I, I wouldn't be here today if that wasn't the case.
1: And I think for me, I I was raised uh, Christian and I did not hate it. I just felt no connection. And I just remember crying and praying, but I was always trying to bargain with God. And it was things that it was me playing God, trying to bargain with God, I guess is a good way to put it, because I just wanted to eat and be thin. And I wanted, um, I mean, also very sad things at a young age. You know, I wanted my grandfather to not be dead and, you know, things like that. But it just, it, I was never um, doing esteemable actions and being loving. Um, and can—and also, I was just, my channels were all blocked off. And I really love thinking about it. In terms now of like energy flows in my higher power is a spiritual one. And some, you know, it's some days it's they, sometimes it's she, sometimes it's he, sometimes it's God, sometimes it's HP. I don't know. It's just to me, it's like that source of love that I feel that is definitely not me, and it's definitely outside of me, which is an amazing thing because I can I cannot trust <laughs> my diseased thinking, but I can trust this thing outside of me. And through my higher power and like channeling my higher power or acting like if I can't, you know, if I'm feeling a little, you know, I I don't hear much, it's what would my higher power have like, what would my higher power do? You know, and like what is the most loving and tolerant thing that I can do? And so I I really spend a lot of conscious time connecting with my higher power and it's in the morning when I'm barely awake. And, um, and it's, it's at night when I'm almost asleep, but it's throughout the day too. And, and it's pursuing, and I speak about this, you know, I try to speak about this a lot because I just try to pursue like what makes me feel closest to my higher power. And some days I, what I've been learning is it's walking in nature, it's being loving, it's giving service, it's reading and uh, writing and and what, I mean, it looks different each day, but I just know it's the source of love. And that if I can tune into that and like tune away from the negativity and um, that I can be guided. And I love that my sponsor shared with me like live life that I know she got somewhere wonderful, but like live life looking for guidance. it, it I don't need to expect, an immediate answer to my prayers in the morning. In fact, I don't anymore, which is a great thing. Like if I have something to pray on, I know that I should start praying now because it might take some days. It might take some hours. Sometimes it is an immediate, you know, hit, an immediate like feeling. And then it's learning to trust that guidance. So today I can, like I mentioned, I can say God and I can, I can read prayers that, you know, say uh, certain things, but I know what it means to me. And I identify into all sorts of religious, um, and spiritual practices now because that's what works for me. And that's, that's where I'm at.
0: (laughs) Okay. So speaking of spiritual practices, would each of you kindly walk us through uh, a day in the life, a day in, in the spiritual life of your spiritual program?
2: Yeah. So for me, when one assignment that my sponsor gave me really early on was just in the morning upon waking, just repeat steps one, two, three in your head. So I do that before I get out of bed, just kind of quietly in my head, just recite steps one, two, three. And lately I've been, I've been saying, you know, step one, I am powerless over people, places, things, including food and I think it's a manageable, because now since the food has been down, it's so much more than just the food, it's, it's everything that's manageable, what I need I need my God to my hair power to help me with it and then um I'll get out of bed I do hit the knees a couple of times <laughs> um working on I'll get out of bed get on my knees and say the third step prayer uh, and an invitation for as little as five minutes and I'll read for today and then um so that's morning for me. And then on weekdays, um, sorry, my internet connections, I'm getting a message that my internet connection is unstable. So somebody please chat me if, if something goes wrong. Um, so on weekdays, um, several times throughout the day, I have a timer that goes off. It's my mindfulness timer. And that's just a reminder to even just for a second, you know, if, if work is nuts, then I just only have just a quick second. I put, place my hand on my heart because that's kind of how I, one of the ways I get connected. Sometimes I'll just say God, 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 God. Um, just to remind myself of God, because I would get amnesia if I don't. Um, I also invite my higher power into meals often. Um, you know, just finding small ways to invite my higher power in throughout my day, because with my own devices, I will be engaged in self-will throughout the day. Um, and that's, it's very un- imperfect for me um, in doing that, especially throughout the day. Like My morning routine is pretty good, and then my nightly routine, I'll do my 10-step nightly review. And for me, what that looks like right now is that I'll write out at least three gratitudes. Um, where have I been selfish, dishonest, resentful, afraid throughout the day? And then I'll, I'll, after I write that out, I'll ask my higher power to forgive me of these defects of character um, and, and help me be in alignment with their will. And then I'll write what I could have done better. And, you know, that is in alignment with the big book, Uh, nightly review it doesn't cover everything but for me I just I had to to do something that was sustainable that I could do every night and maybe I'll add more to it a week from now or a year from now but for now this is what works for me um so yeah morning night and then throughout the day but yeah throughout the day I I do tend to like engage the self-will and just be in my routine and and the anxiety of the day but I am trying to use tools to, to check in with higher power throughout the day
0: and how often do you speak with sponsees or make outreach calls or, you know, get yeah. contact like throughout your day?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, I go to at least three meetings a week and what I like to do with outreach calls is like, if I hear someone speak that I who share, I liked, or if there's a newcomer, I'll like save their number or save the chat and then call them. I try to call them like between the end of that meeting and the start of my next meeting. Um And so so I'll try to do at least like three outreach calls a week. And and oftentimes I'll I'll receive a call, which is awesome because then like, I don't have to go out and and find it. They find me. Um, And then, um, yeah, I, I'm working with two sponsees right now. um, And what I do with them is um, typically we'll do like two quick check-ins throughout the week on weekdays. And then like at least an hour long call on the weekends to go over their book readings and their step work um and then as needed maybe we we ramp up those calls or whatever um and what else in terms of service did i miss anything um yeah prayer throughout the day like for me this is because i didn't have like my you know i talked about how my religion didn't work for me growing up like i had to just adopt something entirely new um the prayers out of the big book just really work for me so um throughout the day and and my during my morning and nightly routines i'll say the serenity prayer the third step prayer the seventh step prayer the suspense prayer the fear prayer i really have been loving the saint francis prayer lately and often like especially in working 10 steps i'll on an ethnic basis i like you know my own prayer and just intuitively kind of pray to my higher power um because you know it's language and whatever however i can identify it with with this practice of prayer and meditation as well and, and all the other ways of connecting there you know got to figure out what works for me with the help of my sponsor and fellows
0: beautiful thank you kira day in the life
1: yeah everything uh rachel said i i certainly practice a lot of that for me um the sponsorship as has been mentioned the outreach um you know moving my body in a healthy way rather than uh painful exercise is not you know it's not tied up with my abstinence you know if I don't you know exercise one day it doesn't mean I'm a bad person but I do like to go for walks or do you know yoga videos I I I do work so a lot of this comes in the morning and the evenings um and for me what I guess because Rachel said such beautiful things I guess I'll really the 11th step has been so wonderful to me and to do this with other people as well has been amazing and just things that i don't even hear myself saying sometimes like i I told my uh someone i'm partnering with right now for the 11th step like oh i was tuning out at i don't want to say it but at a uh, something and um and like that wasn't good of me and she was like oh well were they asking you questions? And I was like, no. And they were, she was like, is it have anything to do with you? And I was like, well, no. And she was like, well, that sounds like you were setting a healthy boundary for yourself. Like, you know, if you had listened there and, and sat and heard like kind of arguments, um, it, it wouldn't have been good for you. And I was like, true. <laughs> she also says we're human beings, not human doers, which I like a lot too, because I can't do everything every single day. Things aren't gonna, you know, they don't have to look a certain way in order for me to feel okay. So I know that if I acted lovingly, and maybe if I got a one less outreach call in, but I spent more time with my family, like that's still a wonderful day. And that's that's a lot of what my days look like.
0: Thank you. Before we open the meeting up to suggested topics and questions from the group, what would you uh, like to say before we do that? Uh, Rachel, you wanna, or Kira, whoever wants to go first, go ahead.
1: Sure. Um, I I was going to suggest we could put up the promises, but if Rachel, you had anything else to add beyond or before that, I'm open to that.
2: I I did want to say, I do want to share something that's kind of been relevant for me in working with others right now, and happy to talk with people more on outreach calls about this concept. But, you know, in working with others, um, it talks about, you know, if if somebody comes in and they're Gnostic or atheist versus you know, if, if your prospect, your sponsee or the person you're working with belongs to a religious domination. And, you know, you, you heard from my experience that I, I came in as an atheist, um, kind of leaning agnostic at that time, about three years ago. Um, and, and just what I found in working with others, like sometimes, this is just what I suspect, but sometimes it can be harder to come in, having, having a, a strong religious foundation, religious and even spiritual, um, and then I'm just saying this anecdotally, having worked with sponsees, but you know, it, for, in working with others, it says, um, as a man be agnostic or atheist, make it emphatic that he does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he lives by spiritual principles. So for me, I created a higher power kind of from nothing um, because I, I was that atheist agnostic. And then it says in the next paragraph, your prospect may belong to a religious denomination. His religious education and training may be far superior than yours. In that case, he is going to wonder how you can add anything to what he already knows. But he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. He may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish, constructive action. Perhaps your story will help him see where he has failed to practice the very precepts he knows so well. We represent no particular faith or denomination. We are dealing only with general principles common to most denominations. So for me, what that says is is like perhaps the principles inherent in many organized religions are kind of reflective of the 12 steps, but just the way in which the 12 steps are, are organized and the self-sacrifice, the humility, the self-searching, the fearlessness required in succession with these steps is is new to us, whether we have a religious denomination or practice or not. And so setting aside what I think I know for a new experience is so important and understanding that the steps are in the, the order that they are in for a reason. Like I have to admit that powerlessness and unmanageability. I mean, the big book dedicates more to step one than any other step in the first 164 pages, and that's for a reason, because we have to we have to really be there. And then when we get to two and three, we have to create that foundation of a, a new or a modified and evolved concept of my personal higher power in order to fearlessly work the remainder of the steps. So. Yeah, I just that was something that that has been really relevant for me lately in working with others. And again, happy to talk more about that with people if you'd like to outreach. Thank you, Kira. Did you
0: wanna? Would you like me to share the promises on screen?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to conclude our little dialogue. Rachel, do you want to read them?
2: Oh, I would love to. Thank you. Um, all right, then set promises. <sighs> if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and this economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them.
1: So I, I feel they really speak for themselves, but I think just in everything we spoke about today, God is with us. We wouldn't be here without God, higher power, loving creator, um, that I'm a work in progress, of course. And But the, I'm not selfish the way I used to be selfish. I'm not self-seeking the way I used to be self-seeking. And I just want to connect with others, give love, feel love, <laughs> and, and, you know, God willing, I, I'll, I'll stay here, f- you know, for till, till I'm, you know, looking down at someone who's 25 and saying, oh, you're so young, how cute. Um, and I'm just grateful. I'm really grateful for everything that we've said, um, uh, gotten to experience thus far. And Rachel, do you want to?
2: Say anything before we go into Q and A? Just yeah, it's a spiritual program. I have I have a uh, I have an illness that um, is physical, mental, emotional, and and spiritual in nature, and my recovery is as well threefold, um, with particular emphasis on spiritual. And I was so resistant to the idea of higher power and a spiritual anything. Um, but the disease beat me down. And if if I can if I can have open-mindedness and, and work the steps with just the word trust, it's possible for anyone. Thanks.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Just for all of the work and the preparation. And I know that the people here I'm sure will have questions or wanna hear you talk on other subjects. So at this point, if you would like to ask a question or suggest a topic for Kira and Rachel, would you please um, either raise your virtual hand in the participants window or the um, reactions window. If you're on the phone, you can hit star nine to raise your hand and if all else fails, um, my number's in my name, you can text me and I will put you in the queue. Melissa, would you please call on the participants?
3: I sure will. Before I call on the participants, I will absolutely say that I will not call you cute and how adorable that you you know, are here at your age. In fact, um, what I get from listening to both of you is a message of depth and weight, and it is ageless and timeless and really powerful. So thank you. I, I really learned a lot hearing you today. Thank you. Um, And um, so here we go, I'm gonna pull up the, in order of hands that are up, I'm gonna start with Celeste. Celeste, would you go ahead and ask your question?
4: Hi, Celeste here, compulsive overeater, food binge sugar addict. You guys are awesome and whether it's your own wisdom or words that come like Rachel said through HP, Gosh, I'm so glad I didn't leave this message when I realized it was a young. I leave this meeting when I realized it was a young people's meeting. Um, my question is for you, Rachel. You, I, I have mostly the similar prayers. You mentioned serenity, third, step, seven, step, Saint Francis, but you said two others. What were they?
2: Uh, let me put my list because I was reading from that at the time, but um, yeah, serenity prayer. Third step prayer, seventh step prayer, sick man's prayer, fear prayer, uh, St. Francis' prayer. And then I'll like make up my own prayers.
4: Thank you, thank you so much. You're all Mm -hmm. awesome, Amy, great job, thank you.
3: Thank you, Celeste, for your question. Um, Jude T, would you go ahead and ask your question? Hey, um, I'm Jude, I'm a compulsive overeater and restrictor. So this question is um, mostly for Rachel, but Kira, you know, feel free to chime in if you have any wisdom. Um, so Rachel, I am also in grad school for counseling. So I just um, wanted to say I empathize with you there and I'm very overwhelmed right now. So I'm trying to balance everything, but I resonated with me when you said that recovery has to be your number one priority or everything else will kind of fall apart. Um, so my question is coming from a background of orthorexia and restriction, how do you find balance in a food plan? Um, I have two weeks abstinent, um, and I've been in the program for two weeks and I'm just kind of trying to figure out what will work for me. Yeah.
2: Thanks for asking that question, Jude. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting with the orthorexia, um, and, you know, I'll, I'll say as it relates to the food plan, like my therapist put me on a food plan. So um, I, I got it from a qualified professional and she had worked with eating disorders for decades. Um, so I recommend, you know, to, to everyone, to Sponsie I work with, to, you know, maybe you start with choosing a food plan from like OA literature, but always wherever possible, consult a nutritionist, dietitian, um, a qualified professional. For food plan because everybody has different bio individual needs. Um and then you know with the orthorexia I really had to look at my behaviors. And for me, just personally, everybody's different. But for me that personally that means I do not count and track my calories on my on certain apps anymore because I was I was obsessed with that I spent so much time and energy. Like it was such like a well, life suck, a time suck when I did that. So that's one behavior um, you know, another, you know, with exercise bulimia, like I only, Kira kind of mentioned this earlier, but I only will move my body if it's something that I truly enjoy. And that makes me feel good, It's not punitive or like in to compensate for having binged or eaten what I think that, that I think I shouldn't have. Um, and for me, as part of my food plan was like eating, uh, three meals a day and an optional snack for generally four hours apart. And that was huge for me because I like because my allergy was continually triggered by substances, even though, like, in my orthorexia, it was like 99% dark chocolate and like coconut milk ice cream sweetened with like maple syrup or whatever. Um, like, I was triggering my disease every few hours with those things. And so, with the structure of like the meal times, was like hugely important. Um, I'm trying to think what else in terms of orthorexia yeah like in my orthorexia I would like just would continually like restrict different types of like categories of food and I think the key for me has been like been the intent behind doing that like in my orthorexia it was because I wanted to lose weight because I wanted to be loved in recovery I don't eat certain foods because I know what they do to my body and and they disrupt my connection with my hair power and with other people. So my, my intent is to quiet my eating disorder um through you know the lens of compassion and kindness to myself um and humility rather than trying to like control everything and control and change my body. So I hope that helps care if you have anything on that.
3: Thank you. I wasn't sure, did Kara say?
1: Oh, sorry. Um, No, I think that was beautifully said and I agree.
3: Great. So we'll go on to the next question. We've got Daisy and then Sarah. Go ahead, Daisy.
6: Thank you. Wow, thank you guys so much. You're both so awesome. And I'm just super grateful for your programs and your beings and yeah, just super excited to be here. Okay, so my question is: I feel sometimes like when I call an older fellow, like there's a very clear boundary of you know we're we're here on this phone call because we're fellows and we're talking about program. I, I find sometimes when I speak with other young people, like my own insecurities rise up, and I there's more of like, you know, where do I fit in socially to this, and like all of all of that <laughs> comes up, um, and it's sometimes harder for me to have boundaries or to figure out like what my role is. Um, So first of all, I guess, does this resonate with either of you? And what have you done about it? Thanks.
1: Yes, it does. And I would say that, I mean, depending on the type of relationship I have with a person, if it's our first outreach call and they're a young person, I'm usually, at, you know, kind of generic, like step work questions or digging in or kind of the things that were talked about today, like just providing any insight onto how program has helped me and how I stay here. And if they are fellows that I'm a little closer with, um, I, I still just generally try, I, I guess part of it's trying, part of it's just natural of, just our conversation staying around program. Um, Because even if they're talking to me about a relationship, you can bring up 10 steps or you can bring up, you know, like, not that I'm like saying to everyone, like, oh, like, what was your part in that? But, you know, just like different perspectives. So what's kind of cool about program and the steps is like being able to bring it back inward because they are, they're specific, but they're general, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm, in, maybe Rachel is another way of putting
2: that. I had a, yeah, I had a thought, like, I don't know that this is speaking to what you're speaking to, maybe you can let me know uh, now or later, but you know, the, the, the word humility came up. Like I know for me early on in recovery, like I would go to meetings with mostly older people in recovery and I would like in my shares, I would be like, I have three months of abstinence. I have six months of abstinence. I have nine months or a year of abstinence. I'm like, I'm doing great, you know? And um, needing, because I'm, not, I'm a codependent, like needing other people to see me as like, okay. And like, good. And, and not having that willingness to be vulnerable. It's like, it, it was weird. Like in the first couple months in recovery, like I was so vulnerable. Like I couldn't not cry at every meeting and it was so messy. And that discomfort got me to a place where I could connect with God. And then it was like, okay, I felt like self-will engaged again. And just in the past couple of years in recovery now, like I have to have that willingness to admit to anyone and everyone, regardless of age, like, hey, I'm struggling with someone. Like I told you all earlier, like I still struggle with body checking, you know? Like that's, that's real, that's still there for me. And I'm imperfect and to understand like, regardless of age, regardless of tenure, how long we're, we've each been in program, like we are all just compulsive eaters those various expressions of eating disorders, just trying to get better together. And like, we're all truly equals and there's no hierarchy and, and really asking, just inviting God in. Like, whenever I feel that way, like, hey, God, help me, help me like connect with this person the way that you would have me connect, and do that imperfectly.
3: Great, thank you. Um, we've got Sarah and after Sarah, Allie. Hey, Sarah.
0: Hey, guys. Thank you so much, guys. was interesting to hear you all. Um, I want to get to some juicy stuff. I want to talk dating. Now, I'm single. I have zero prospects. I'm not even close to, you know, going to that field right now. But I would like to hear how you guys handle that in recovery, um, specifically because I think it is different when you're younger. Well, obviously, dating is different. But I hear a lot of women in program who are already married, or if you're younger and like people think, like don't understand that at all. When you're older, it's like, I've got diabetes or like whatever you get when you're older. We're like, when you're younger, it just looks like you're on like the latest fad diet. So like, what does that look like for you guys now? No offense to anybody on here
5: that's older. Um,
1: I can hop in here. Um, I- when I was in my disease, I was not doing any dating whatsoever. (laughs) Like I did not like to be touched, to be looked at. I loved to flirt so that, you know, I could, you know, people could flirt back with me, but the second, you know, and then through just poor decisions and substances, um, that's how that worked. And then when I was 21, I, Uh, entered the relationship I'm in now still. And it is, I was just talking to Rachel about this, like so radically different than what it was. So I don't know what it's like to be in program and dating um, a new person or dating multiple people or whatever that looks like. But the way that I show up in my relationship is so much different because I used to like from someone who never had a relationship to begin with, like ever to their first boyfriend, it was just, I was so like attached and I didn't, I needed this person to like me just like with everyone else. I needed this person to like me in order for me to like me. And Oh, maybe I'm valuable and can like myself because they like me and they accept my body for all its stretch marks and loose skin. And, you know, uh, you know, I could list off everything I didn't like about myself. And it's it's knowing that like my program comes first, God comes first. I was asked to, like point blank two weeks ago, like he he said something like you're you're the number one thing in my life. I was like, God, I literally said like my higher power. I don't know. It was more of like a it wasn't that weird of a conversation in the context of what we we're having, but like truly like if I'm not in fit spiritual condition, and I'm not joking about this, like I can't show up in relationships and I can't date and how do I know what I like when I've got all the voices in my head telling me just like take and deserve whatever comes your way like that's how I lived for too long so now I know and I'm still figuring out like what what I like and what I deserve but I know it's it's to a certain standard and just other things about which I I won't really go into but just I was so miserable and withdrawn that I didn't even get to like process things like sexuality and things that I'm, you know, are coming to the forefront now for me. And it's, I'm really grateful for that. So that's as much as I could say, but I know Rachel has some some, some stuff to say about this too.
2: Uh, yeah, uh, thanks Sarah for asking this question. I, I'm thrilled this came up. Um, no, yeah, I would come into meetings and like hear from these people people, women, older women in the meetings, like, oh, yeah, my husband, I would be like, how the fuck did you find a husband? Like, while you were in your disease, like, I could not conceive of that. Because in my disease, I isolate, I hate myself, I cannot make eye contact with anyone. And then it was even more insidious, like after I lost the weight, because my outward appearances, like I was a normie. You know, just in terms of my body size, like I went from a size 22 to like a 12 or 14 over several years. And then I started getting attention from men and it was all of a sudden it was like, what do I do with it? Like, it's such a mindfuck. And And um, yeah, like I, I've only like, my first kiss was at 20 years old. My The, the first time I was intimate with somebody, I was 21. Um, so I was a late bloomer and like, and you saw the photos, some of you saw the photos of me earlier. Like I just couldn't stand my body and I had no no sense of self-worth and only, it was only until coming into recovery that I was able to have, like, that I fell in love for the first time that I was like in a committed long-term relationship. And I'm in a new relationship now with someone I met through recovery. And I'm actually like in Pennsylvania like visiting him right now and like yeah it's exciting and he's washing the dishes right now <laughs> um yeah so there's a the tea there's a the tea y'all um so yeah uh no I like you know I can't predict the future I only have today and um I like myself today and I can connect with this person today and you all today
3: That is tremendously hopeful. That is just beautiful. Thank you, both of you. Thank you. Um, Next is Allie and then Liz T.
7: Hey, Allie. Hey, I love your overalls. Those are so cute. Um, I'm Allie, I'm a compulsive overeater in Kansas City. Um, Really grateful to be here. Um, I'm working on step six and seven right now and I'm so uncomfortable. Um, I know that one of my defects is perfectionism and like I cried all day yesterday, which was great. Um, and then today I just feel like I have like, now that that's out, I need to control and I need to figure it out and I need to fix myself. Like I, and I know that that's not the answer. So my, I guess my question is, how do you, how am I supposed to get comfortable with these horrible, uncomfortable feelings of just like being off or like when I can't pinpoint the emotion? Um, I know that it's just like, I know that it's anxiety and fear. Um, but it's just, I think it all boils down to like fear of not being enough or being inadequate. Like, how do you get comfortable feeling uncomfortable?
2: um get comfortable yeah we have to get uncomfortable with- we have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable but that's the answer um you know and there's a solution it says almost none of us like the self-searching the leveling of our pride the confession of shortcomings which the process requires for its successful consummation but we saw that it really worked in others and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it so life as i had been living it was like perfectionism and self-will and like trying to do it on my own, isolating. Um, so like leaning into humility and vulnerability and like being willing to trust other people is so important. And like I heard something at a meeting a little while ago that like my ability to trust other people is reflective of my ability to trust my higher power. Um I did not come up with that, but it just kind of struck me like leaning in to trust trust for me trust trusting other people trusting trusting god and and being okay with the discomfort and like working the steps around it is how is what helped me
1: i would say i can understand that very deeply i would say that when i was in my disease i had such walls around myself that Everything was outside of my comfort zone because my comfort zone was like this close to me, you know, and everything I did sticking out my foot and my arm or just doing anything made me uncomfortable. So, like in terms of discomfort, I already knew what that felt like existing the bodies that I existed in and existing in this disease. When working through six and seven, like looking at my deep at this point, we've acknowledged them and we're asking them to be removed. I like to say to a lot of people, like throughout, I mean, this whole process, like we need to cut ourselves some major slack. I'm not saying work less hard or, you know, don't listen to your sponsor, but like have some compassion or fake some compassion, treat yourself kindly, even if you don't feel it, whatever it is, because for me, no wonder one would feel that discomfort, you know, all we've ever known is living with those defects. All I've ever known is that instant reaction to lie to someone, you know, I'm asked any sort of question my instant reaction is to lie. So of course, it's going to not feel normal to be asking the only perspective of life, you know, to be removed and to look at your assets and, and, and to what would a loving, tolerant, higher power have you do rather than your disease, dark, sick thoughts. So like when you can have, when, when I get to a place that I can like have compassion for myself, or at least some you know, cause my brain is, you know, I still have things that I run up against and I just, if I could take a step back and be like, okay, I can either figure out right now what is causing this disruptance, which thankfully I most of the time can, but if I can't, I just, that's when the acting as if comes in for me. And I, if, you know, what can I do to then feel close again? And I know it's worked every other time that I can feel close And, you know, in my body and not be disassociated or not anxious or, you know, I know now I have all of these tools and people I can speak to and prayers, I can say, so I'll do those anyway, even if I don't. Feel super comfortable in that moment, so I don't know if that helps but it's helped me.
3: Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, we've got Liz T and then. Go ahead Liz.
4: Everybody, This is Liz T. I'm a recovered compulsive reader in Minnesota and great job, everybody. Good job with this workshop. Um, great presentations and questions. Um, my question was kind of on the heels of what Sarah asked about. Um, you know, coming in as a young person, you know, I came in as 40 at 40 um, in my you know, late 30s. I'm 44 now. So six years ago, my late 30s. I was already married and I was just, I had, I was thinking as both of you were sharing, um, you know, college age, what's it like with the party scene? I mean, there has to be a lot of peer pressure. I personally don't drink alcohol because that's part of my abstinence. To me, it's, you know, it's a sugar, so I I don't touch it. But um, for that kind of age group, How does that affect you socially and and like for me you know um, I take my food with me a lot you know to to social functions or you know I don't order out a lot in a restaurant or when I do it's you know I have to plan ahead so is there anything you could speak on that that's been helpful for you and just how you navigated that being a young person thank you
2: yeah Liz I'm so glad you asked that question yeah, for, for me personally, like, I am i don't necessarily have an addiction to alcohol, but I stopped drinking because it makes me want to eat. Um, and as it relates to like the party scene, like, yeah, I would like binge drink. And when I first started drinking, I would binge drink and it would suppress my appetite. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And this is a miracle. And then later it was like, okay, one half a glass of wine is like, I need all the sugar. Um, and it like, I would... Uh, because of my thyroid issue, like I would, I would go out and party and binge drink with my friends because I, I really couldn't just have one or two drinks. It was like always binge drinking, because that's just what we did. Um, we would go out downtown, or we would go to house parties or whatever, and I would be like out of commission for the whole weekend. And and that's that's not who God would have me be, you know, like in in the binge drinking, in the food throughout the rest of the weekend, because like come home from a night out, binge eat next morning binge eat leftovers if there were any and then like the rest of the weekend just like well I, I already fucked up so I might as well just do whatever I want um yeah and and yeah like since since I got abstinent and and since I kind of quit that scene like I, I, some of my friendships have shifted um but I've I've discovered new relationships that like with people who are aligned with this spiritual path and like the who who I have become and this the steps have offered and the big book have offered me like an entire personality shift you know step 12 says having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps like i worked the steps and i had a spiritual awakening and like i don't want to go back to that like i don't want to go back to out to like binge drink downtown at the bars anymore and like living that life that's not it's not what i want I, you know I, I i do know other people in programs who like do drink and and maybe they can moderate that that's not for me to say but i just know like my, for me my freedom looks like not engaging in those behaviors and that said I can still go to parties and like be social because like years ago I, I, I believed that alcohol was the thing that I needed to be social and to like be bubbly and like connect with people and through it was hard at first but like through this process of recovery I've learned hey I actually can make eye contact I actually can be present with people even if they're drinking Like I can still like hang out with my friends and not be drinking. And if anybody has a major problem with it, then maybe that's not somebody that I want in my life because they're not supportive of like my best self and who God has has turned me into as a result of the stuff.
1: And yeah, I completely agree. I know we just have a couple minutes here. So I, I, everything Rachel said, I have three sponsees right now who are 23 21 and 17 so one of them is senior year of college and has been sober is almost you know god willing like recovered like has been sober this whole semester and is turning over her food and is calling me you know if she if she does you know hang out with friends and things get you know just uncomfortable but for the most part like because she works a strong spiritual relationship which is what it says in the spiritual program i know there's a line couldn't tell you what page but it says something like We can go anywhere as long as our intentions are like good and pure so there have been times i've gone out with not i mean like a year ago i guess at this point but like i had gone out with my friends and i just didn't drink and i just didn't eat and i prepped my food and i brought it with me Um, and other times if i was feeling uneasy it's not going to get any better if i surround myself with a bunch of people who are drunk and high and partying and eating cake you know so i just have to it's always it's never too late to say like no i'm not going to hang out tonight or proposing a more low-key alternative Um, I just, everything I mentioned of um, bringing God with me, and I mean that, you know, in all things and boundaries. And um, when I made my amends, it kind of, you know, put kind of a a firm thing for me of, look, I just made amends for the gossip I was doing. Here's, I I guess I'm just talking social life in general at this point, but now people know like if they start gossiping around me or you know i'm just not gonna get involved and then when i think about boundaries i can set boundaries today i know i'm deserving enough to set boundaries but where my uh program comes in is i can't expect people to you know adhere to those so if i tell my friends i'm not drinking i'm not down to do this and it happens around me i can leave you know nothing is permanent in terms of where i'm at and just knowing that i have an escape route phone call via prayer or a phone call actually or Literally, just leaving where I'm at has helped me a lot. So, thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much. I know that we are at five o'clock. Nikki, your hand was up before. Did you want to ask? Is that okay if we allow one more question, Kara? And um, yeah, thanks. Thanks. Okay.
5: Well, that's really kind of you guys. I was just going to uh, not do it, but I appreciate that. I guess. Um, My name is Nakaya. I'm a compulsive overeater uh, and binge eater. And thanks so much for the time here. Um, I guess my question is surrounding, I, I feel like my, you know, my addict, it's been interesting, Rachel, as you've been talking about, like the obsession with healthy eating too, because I think that's happened, right? So like all of the things that I know I'm supposed to do, I feel like I have done to the extreme and then it's self-destructive, right? So service even becomes self-seeking, right? Weighing and measuring becomes obsessive. And so um, I was just wondering about like how you keep the, that balance because it gets to a point where it's self-destructive and then I throw it all away, you know, and start over. So um, just grateful for your uh, experience and time here today. Yeah, I can speak to
2: that. Um, yeah, um, I talk about this a lot with my funsies and it's not necessarily big book related, but like understanding the difference between guilt and shame, like guilt is for what I've done and shame is for who I am. So if I can look at the behavior I've engaged in and then release the shame, like deconstruct those, those beliefs about myself that maybe my disease is telling me, but I can't like, maybe, maybe I do engage a little bit of guilt. Like, okay, I did this. It didn't serve me. And really importantly, like getting honest with my sponsor and fellows about it, because once I, once I speak it aloud to my sponsor and my higher power, more importantly, even it, it helps to break down the disease again. So like getting honest, working the steps about it and like really looking at it, maybe through step work, you know, steps, four through nine and, and 10 on a daily basis. And even in meditation and prayer, like what is it that I'm believing about myself? What are my defects? Um, and, and I like to kind of consider defects to be rather than defects, because for me that sounds kind of harsh, but like coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms that I developed as the result of my trauma and my, my disease, which is really powerful, but just like the disease is progressive, so is recovery.
0: Nothing to add before we close. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for your questions, for your attendance here today. Thank you, Kira and Rachel, for your service, your time, and your example. Both of you are so inspiring. And may I just say that um, I am such a grateful witness and, and student of your um message thank you so much for this today i'd like to thank everyone for attending and let's just close with the serenity prayer god grant me the serenity to thank accept you. the things i, I cannot things change, change i cannot change the courage to, the courage change, to change the things i can, can. and the wisdom, the wisdom to know, know the, difference. the difference amen thank you